This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. You're listening to Outtakes, the home of queer cinema on Joy 94.9. It's Conrad with you for this Outtakes Extra. The attempted modernisation of Melbourne in the 1950s destroyed much of the city, including its elegant cinemas and picture palaces. Now, a new Melbourne-made documentary called The Lost City of Melbourne is bringing them back to life. Melbourne has been an epicentre of arts and culture since the 1850s. It was here that the world's first film, The Story of the Kelly Gang, was made, and the early 20th century saw the rise of back-alley movie theatres and outdoor cinemas across Greater Melbourne. But in the 1950s, when Melbourne played host to the Olympics, cultural cringe fostered the idea that our Victorian architecture made us look the opposite of a modern metropolis. And so began a demolition blitz that paved over a century's worth of built heritage, and in the process, raising many of the city's various movie theatres. Featuring rare archival video and photography, as well as the invaluable input of key historians, This loving and revelatory work of local history allows us to reimagine the former glory of Australia's film and art capital. In examining Melbourne's rich architectural and social past, director Gus Berger also prompts consideration as to how continuing development and gentrification may impact the city's artistic lineage and treasured landmarks. The Lost City of Melbourne is a celebration, not just of Melbourne's beloved bygone picture palaces, but also of its enduring relationship to the cinema itself. Here is the trailer for The Lost City of Melbourne. Melbourne was the fastest growing city in the world in the early 1850s. It was a place jumping out of its skin. You did things ten times bigger than they were done elsewhere. They borrowed big, they lived big, they built big. I grew up in Essendon and I could walk to three cinemas. You've got suburbs that have five and six theatres, and some of these were masterpieces. There are cinemas that we think of as being spectacular, like the Regent Theatre and the Plaza. And you'd have an orchestra. It would have been an incredible time to go to the movies. So in the lead-up to the Olympic Games, when we were inviting the world in, There was a lot of discomfort. Melburnians as a whole suffered from cultural cringe. Melbourne wanted above all to be a modern city. And being modern meant having modern buildings. Television was the single biggest threat to theatres. Some beautiful theatres were just completely demolished. There was not much of a preservation movement at all. It was just... Vandalism. They were huge and lavish enterprises. Grand cafes with dining rooms, especially for women. Buildings with every gorgeous fixture and bit of master craftsmanship you could ask for. But Melbourne is so very close to absolute annihilation. It is so very nearly dull beyond belief. And these guys were just, they were acrobats. They were like a live acrobat show. 
they didn't realise the love that Melbourne had for the region. The Regent Theatre really was that line in the sand and opposition to demolition of old buildings just went like this. We've got our devastating losses but wow, we've got buildings that we fought for, we championed and they survive. There's enough there to make us feel that we still inhabit a city that is recognisably marvellous Melbourne. The Lost City of Melbourne had its world premiere screening at the 2022 Melbourne International Film Festival and is screening now across Melbourne at many of our favourite local independent cinemas. Check out thelostcityofmelbourne.org forward slash schedule for more details. I spoke with Gus Berger, the director and producer of The Lost City of Melbourne, and we covered off on a wide range of topics related to the film, his career, and how this passion project came to be. Here is Gus Berger for outtakes on Joy 94.9. Gus, first up, congratulations on a really fantastic documentary. I was trying to describe it to an ex-Melburnian recently, and, and I said to them, it's equal parts heartbreaking and very hopeful is how I try to position it. But it also is this really beautiful love letter to Melbourne as well. But before we get into actually talking about the film itself, I'm interested to know a little bit more about you and how this project came to be. Sure. Well, I run a um, a cinema in um, Thornbury called Thornbury Picture House, and I've worked in film cinemas or running film events for about 15 years now. I've sort of always gravitated, I guess, through work and through my general passion into filmmaking and cinemas um, and what they represent to people and communities as a whole and trying to bring different contents or grow audiences to engage with film content in cinemas. I think that's probably something I've been doing. That's probably a, a, a consistent thing I've been doing um, with cinema work for the last 15 years. And I started doing that in the UK. I worked at an organisation called Doc House and they were passionate about documentaries and uh, my boss had been teaching documentary filmmaking at National Film and Television School for years and right. she always felt that documentaries were always like kind of the the poor cousin in the cinema world and <laughs> uh, unless you were like a Michael Moore or Nick Broomfield or Agnes Varda no one wanted to see a documentary in a cinema so it was her mission and um and and became my mission to go to film festivals in europe or find films that are done well in film festivals and give them short theatrical runs in cinemas and yep. um and so from there it was learning a lot about how you kind of build audiences to engage with film content in cinemas and that normally people wouldn't engage with that content and uh, when I got back to Melbourne and um, I started this short film and music video event and started running that at Acme and curating these really amazing short films and mm. inter intertwining them with uh, music videos. Um, yeah, so I've always sort of been fascinated with films and together with that is film history and mm. the cinemas that Melbourne used to have and the theatres that Melbourne used to have and whether I lived in Richmond or St Kilda or Brunswick or wherever, um, I always knew where these old cinemas were and what had become of them. And some of them were still standing, but were now furniture shops or tire <laughs> shops or Italian wedding venues. Or, and some of them were, you know, had been totally demolished and were now pubs with pokies. So 
Yeah, I don't know. It was kind of a little bit of an obsession, I guess. Yeah, an obsession that you took all of the your experience and your love of cinema and you've put it into this film that documents Melbourne's history of its growth in lots of ways, its love affair with cinema, but also the way that it kind of turned its back a little bit on that. The project itself, how long before you started actually seriously putting time and effort into it to it actually getting released? What was the, the time frame for all of this? It was pretty much about two years. There was already a small germ of an idea, which was a small short film that we play sometimes at Thornby Picture House before classic films, and it's called The Lost Cinemas of the North, and it's mm. not really a short film. It's more of a montage, but it was made up of um, a whole lot of photographs, some of which you see in the film, of cinemas in Preston, Coburg, Thornbury, Brunswick, and Northcote, and we put music underneath it, and mm. we sort of, you know, and it only goes for about, five minutes it was going to be kind of like a, an extension of that or it was like okay well maybe i need to make a new one or maybe i need to make something a bit longer and when the lockdowns first happened and we were as a cinema business we were one of the first businesses to close and right. i felt that if we were the first to close we'd probably be the last to open and and i had a feeling that it was going to be a protracted mm. kind of lockdown so once I sort of hibernated the business and made sure that we did the things that I needed to do to get rid of the costs coming out of that business, and you know because we we you know we we pay rent and um, and all of that there, and mm. once I sort of made sure that we would sort of done enough to kind of have a business at the end, I sort of I just sort of had the time then. It was the first time that I'd been able to put aside maybe four or five hours a day at going you know, deeper into these archives of the State Library of Victoria and National Film and Sound Archive and ACME. And, and I literally entered a rabbit hole, like, of you know, I just went down this path of um, looking for these photographs and looking for film and, and discovered that it wasn't just cinemas and theatres mm. that we lost in Melbourne, but there were all these other buildings as well. And, and then it was like, oh, I wonder what happened to them. And then uh, and when do they all go? And I was reading more at that time. So reading Robin and his books and Graham Davidson's books on sort of that history of built Melbourne. And it started to paint this sort of picture of like, like a perfect storm that was happening in Melbourne in the 50s where there were all of these pressures that were building, you know, the cultural cringe bit, the, the, the Olympics and not wanting to look old fashioned when the world's cameras came in. And it just so happened that the same year the Olympics was the year that TV came in mm. and TV was just the, the big, the biggest cinema killer that we've seen. So it was literally like a, a perfect storm. And then I, uh, and that probably took me, I don't know, maybe um, nine months for the story to develop where it suddenly started to take sh that sort of shape. And so by that stage, I uncovered a lot of incredible archive of photographs and, and film um, that, also painted that type of picture so it was kind of when it was a moment where the story came together with the the archive that I'd been uncovering and then I, I sort of felt that maybe there was a there was something more than just a a 10 minute montage um to play before Casablanca in the cinema I, I you know <laughs> they, I felt that maybe there was a, a film there I love that during two years of, of lockdowns and COVID and things in, in Melbourne, people were bragging about perfecting sourdough and doing puzzles, and <laughs> you, you made a documentary, um, a feature-length yeah. documentary. So, And I'm well, glad you I'm, I'm, really I'm glad a terrible you cook, so you know, <laughs> I, was, I was never going to, never going to discover that, just that, that, part of, that part of me. But I think, um, I think it was my way of like just dealing with the stress yep. of, 
of that lockdown. And I think that being creative is a great way to and and you know that's that's the same i guess with the sourdough analogy you know it's it's being creative it's 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 taking your mind somewhere else and for me i think that i was probably gravitating towards melbourne for a reason like i think that i like many other people were in shock as what was going on in melbourne at the time you know curfews five kilometer limits um schools Mm. closed you know, people dying, yeah. you know, it was a very dark time. Businesses closed, you know, it was just depressing. I'd go up to Thornbury Picture House, which is on High Street in Thornbury, which is normally pumping on a Saturday night and going up there to probably do maintenance and also probably bring a couple of bottles of wine home. And, <laughs> you know, and it's just tumbleweed and yeah. and it was just depressing. So I think that burrowing into and, and absorbing myself into Melbourne of a, at a very different time was probably quite cathartic and um, it probably was a way for me to connect with the city when it was just in in such a world of pain so i really enjoyed that process of the archive like it didn't seem like work it really i really enjoyed it and and some of the photos that you see in the film and you know the the state library have, have done an amazing job of preserving and enhancing a lot of that but they were taken in such a good format like mm. uh, that dry plate photography and those early cameras they were on big negatives so the information that they were getting on those negatives at the start was incredibly detailed and very good clarity. So, you know, you can sort of zoom in on these photos of procession on Burke Street in, you know, 1910, and you can zoom right up into the windows on the second floor. There's people just hanging out of the windows and <laughs> sitting on the verandas and there's loads of kids without parents running around. But, you know, you can see all the old shop signs and so I was just impressed at the detail, but also just loving seeing that um, level of detail of what was going on in the streets of Melbourne 100 years ago. And, and I felt probably at the time that, wow, the, some of these would look great in a cinema type setting mm. because, you know, people wouldn't necessarily get that opportunity to see them on a big screen. Like, you know, you, there's a big difference between seeing a, a photo like that in a cinema than seeing it on your phone as you're scrolling through Instagram. The photos still got power, but you don't get that detail. So I think that that was always a motivator to show people as they're about to see another film at Thornbury Picture House as opposed to seeing the entire film at Melbourne Film Festival, which was certainly not an intention and was just a lovely surprise at the end of it. As someone who has lived in Melbourne for over 20 years and you're a huge fan of Melbourne as a city and its cinema scene as well, I think I appreciated this film on so many levels and and that's what I'm hearing from people who have been fortunate enough to see it already as well as is that it's a history lesson about Melbourne and it's so fascinating to see its progression and particularly through you looking at different cinemas and different buildings that have either been kept and restored or met their fate unfortunately and that's what I said to you at the beginning is that you know I found this film quite heartbreaking in, in lots of ways but really kind of hopeful in, in some as well was there one particular scene or building or discussion that you had that really surprised you? It was probably finding out what went on in the Eastern Market I think was probably mm. A real surprise to me because I'd, I'd heard of the Eastern Market. I knew that it stood where the Southern Cross used to stand and um, is no longer there. But um, I always thought it was just a like the Queen Vic Market, just a food produce market. And it wasn't until I started talking to people like Robin and Ian Graham Davis and reading their books that there was just like this whole 
scene going on of like fortune tellers and magic acts yeah. and oyster bars and bands and speakers corners and um, whenever there was enough people that were angry about a, a government decision they would all gather there and protest and and it would have been packed all of people so it was so much more than just a produce market it was a real gathering place for melbourne and i think it was hilarious where robin and Nia says melbourne was intentionally built without a town square where people could get overly democratic so people had nowhere to to gather in a formal way but they did gather at the eastern market and this was pre-cinema so that was what people did on a saturday night and it would have been not families kids everyone just congregating and it would have been such a scene i could go back in time it would probably be about then because but also like those early cinemas mm. um, that i talked about a little bit in the film that there were some stories i couldn't talk about all of them but i mean there was these factories in brunswick that would be doing this really early 20th century activity like making horseshoes and then um the first projectors were, were starting to be invented and were coming in and, and then it would turn into like a you know, a cinema at night, they'd clear out all the factory gear and a thousand people would come in on a side wow. street off Sydney Road and watch probably some very early short films on a cinema screen. And then, you know, they'd all leave and then bring all the, all the machinery back in again and it would be a factory the next day. So it was just people coming together in en masse for forms of entertainment that really I think would have been amazing to, to witness and Hopefully I'm trying to convey a bit of that in the film. Oh, absolutely. One of the ones that you touch on um, in particular, which really drove a dagger into my heart, and I'm still really furious about it, is what happened to the palace. And and the footage that you show from that, you know, I was just so devastated that such a wonderful venue was, was taken away from us. And I read in a recent interview that you did with the ABC that, that we need to question the ethics of the current trend of facadism. And I think that is such a really great way of putting it. Melbourne seems to be in this space at the moment that we're saying that we're respecting the the buildings from the past and, and everything by keeping the facades, but just gutting the rest and putting yeah. a new building behind it. I think your your documentary is really is meant to be a bit of a a wake up call and a bit of a hey, you know, this has happened before and we think we're doing better now, but it really doesn't seem like we are. Is that how you're feeling? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, we, we definitely could do better. I still think that the power is in the hands of the developers because mm. if, if anything, um, whenever anything gets contested and you've got, for example, the local council and residents versus a developer and there's a dispute over the value of a building in terms of its heritage or its you know community value, it goes to VCAT. And then because VCAT is a, a court setting with legal representation, just by that definition, um, it becomes unbalanced because it favours the, the, the people who have got um, more financial backing to legally fight um, an outcome. So, you know, there's something kind of not quite right there because I'm aware of many examples and there's one example near um, where I live in Brunswick where the council were against a development of a building. Hundreds of residents were against it. Uh, it went to VCAT um, against the developer and, you know, the, the developer won. And <laughs> it just seems crazy mm. that, like, the council and the people who live in that area don't have the power to choose w how they want their neighbourhood 
to what they want it to look like and what they consider valuable because surely the council and the residents know more about that particular area than a developer who, you know, let's face it, they're there to make money. That's their motive. It's bigger than all of us, right? And I think that's what you really highlight in this is that even our best intentions is not going to stop development, but there needs to be so much more thought put into it and just leaving the front bricks of a, a building and saying, you know, this is a historic yeah. building and then a massive hotel behind it is just, it's not good enough. That's right, Conrad. And I think also it's important to um, to note, and I think it's important for planners on a government or level to realise that there's value in buildings that can't necessarily be measured in those tangibles mm. of the heritage value and having a heritage consultant come and look at the, the style of architecture and determine whether it's got heritage value. That's important for sure. But there needs to be also um, a way of looking at a building and saying, you know, how important is this to the community? Like, for example, the palace, you know, mm. cinemas that didn't necessarily have that value of heritage on the outside was still a really integral and important part of Melbourne's cultural music and art scene. So, and you can't easily measure that, but it's, and, but it's so important. So I think that you need to look at all of these areas of the value of, of buildings to determine whether they should be allowed to be developed. And because as, mm. as we all know, like once something huge goes within the walls of a beautiful building, all of that power of, of that building is gone. Mm -hmm. um, so the value of the, the facade is, is greatly diminished because the perspective has changed. And it, 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 to me, it doesn't make any sense because there's value of what goes on inside these buildings and there's value with the buildings standing on their own height level. And it annoys me, but, it, you know, I'd like people to think that um, it's not all down to money and power like I think that people do have a, um, a big say in, in how they want Melbourne to look and if people are, are particularly attached to certain buildings in certain areas then they definitely do have a voice it's just that they've got to make their voice heard because um, if people don't then things just keep falling through the cracks and one of the things for me is that while it is you know it's sad at times watching the documentary uh, it is also heartening to know that we do have some of those really wonderful buildings still there and i know it's it's a it's a bit of a cliche that someone puts out a documentary and you know there's a lesson to be learnt from it but i would really love to know what would you like people to take away from your film I think that if people can look at the city in a kind of a, a new way or just re-look at it again, engage with it differently and to see that there are so many of these really important buildings that have got not only heritage value from the outside but have got real value on the inside as well. There's so much more than just beautiful old buildings now. You know, they're, they're, they're places where people have been going for special occasions. I think that it's really important for us as Melburnians to continue to support these venues and not take them for granted because as um, one of the historians said in the film, you know, like people were valuing the cinemas in the fifties, but they, after TV came in, but they weren't going there. And so it was just like, well, you know, they needed to make money out of the building. So they just pulled them down. So I think it's important that we, we recognize that we are still really lucky to have what we've got. And particularly these venues that, uh, you know, form film festivals and comedy festivals and movies and, and shows and all of that sort of thing. I think it's really important that we make sure that we're, we're you know, to be aware that we're so lucky that we've still got them and to support them and uh, make sure that we don't lose any more. 
Absolutely. Yeah, you can't be the cultural capital of Australia without somewhere to show off the culture, right? <laughs> no, that's yeah. exactly right. Thanks again to the Lost City of Melbourne's director and producer, Gus Berger, for speaking with us about this fantastic documentary. Catch it on the big screen now. For more details, visit thelostcityofmelbourne.org forward slash schedule. This has been Conrad with an Outtakes Extra. Thanks for listening. Take care out there. You've been listening to Outtakes, the home of queer film and television on Joy 94.9. Want to catch up on past episodes? Head to joy.org.au forward slash outtakes or search Outtakes on your favourite podcast platform. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.